A reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for what it tells us about who you are, about your goodness, about your grace, about your glory, Lord. And we pray that as we approach this text, that we would, we would come to a deeper awareness of your goodness and your grace and your glory. We pray that we would behold that in the face of Jesus as we marvel at this powerful text, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Well, this week, uh, my wife Katie was on a business trip. She went to Austin, which was very confusing for our children um, because we talk about how we lived in Boston for a time, but Katie was in Austin. We lived in Boston where it was cold. Katie was in Austin where it was hot. Their minds blew a little bit, but we, we, we managed to get through. And uh, on her way back from Austin, not Boston, uh, she got stuck in the airport for an extended period of time. Um, nothing bad happened. She just got there early and had to wait for a very long time. And it just so happened that as she was sitting in the airport waiting for her plane, uh, I was driving back from San Diego. We had our presbytery meeting uh, down in San Diego this week. And so God is good. He brought those two circumstances together. We were both bored and we got to talk for a long time. And as we were talking, uh, it was getting closer and closer to dinner time for Katie, where she was at, and I, I had a recommendation for her. Um, I had I had had a layover in I had a layover in uh, in Austin uh, this summer, 
And while I was there, I, I got dinner at a, at a brisket place. And so I told Katie, right, you, are, you are in Texas, like one in Rome. You need to go get yourself some brisket. And I knew that that was not going to be a, a recommendation that she would just jump on. Uh, I've, we, Katie and I have known each other since we were children, and like literally children. And um, uh, for a good portion of our relationship, Katie has not been one to eat meat, let alone brisket. But God has done a work in her heart, and she <laughs> is more and more inclined to eat meat. And um, anyway, so I, so I threw out this suggestion. And I knew the process that was going to happen in Katie's mind. She was going to hear the suggestion and reject it outright at first. And then she would slowly consider it. It's like she knows me and she knows that I wouldn't have her do something that she wouldn't enjoy. And then I knew after like step one, step two, step three would come and FOMO would take over. Like she wouldn't want me to have an experience that she wouldn't also get to have. And so she gave in and she got the brisket and it was delicious. But as I was thinking about that interaction a little bit later, I, I, I thought about the gift of really knowing someone. One of the sweetest things about being in a relationship like a marriage is that you get to know someone. You get to know someone deeply to the point where you're able to not just guess a, a general reaction, but know the process that will get them there. You get to know someone's mind almost as well as they do. Well, friends, one of the beautiful things that we see in this text, like one of the things that is so powerful about it is that we are given a glimpse, not just of another person's mind, but of the mind of Jesus. And when we gaze at the mind of Jesus, what do we see? We see this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this morning, we are going to look at the mind of Jesus. We're going to examine what that means, what that is, and three aspects of it. We'll talk about what it seeks, what the mind of Jesus seeks, what characterizes it, and finally, what it leads to. So first, what the mind of Jesus seeks. Now, if we take on the mindset of Jesus, what is it that we will seek? Well, the answer that, we're, that we see at the beginning of this passage is unity. Our text begins with an earnest appeal from Paul to the church in Philippi to be unified. In verses 1 and 2, we read, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It is hard to imagine this call for unity being any stronger. One commentator writes, Unity belongs to the very essence of Christian life, for it is the way in which Christians display outwardly what the gospel is and means to them. Unfortunately, the unity that we are called to is often hard to find in our churches. 
There's a book by an old pastor named Leslie Flynn called Great Church Fights, which is a very unfortunate title. It's very unfortunate that that book exists, but alas, it does. And in it, he quotes a story from a Welsh newspaper about a church that was looking for a new pastor. This is an actual story. It happened. Um, it's not just one of those, like, pastor stories. Anyway, um, so in this Welsh church, apparently there were two factions, and they were looking for a pastor, and they couldn't come together. So each faction decided to hire its own pastor, but for the same pulpit. So each faction, again, they went and they found their candidates, and a Sunday came, and each candidate came and went to preach a sermon. But there was one pulpit. So what ended up happening was each pastor preached his own sermon and tried to drown out the other one. Eventually, they called for hymns, and guess what? They chose two different hymns. And so so the church split down the middle. One was singing one hymn, the other was singing the other hymn, and it was chaos to the point where a deacon called the police. Now, the church has always and continues to face problems from the outside. There will always be external pressures. But unfortunately, so often our biggest problems come from within. And this is where we need to remember that unity is not optional. But again, it belongs to the very essence of Christian life. The Scottish theologian uh, Donald MacLeod writes this. He says, We don't need justification for union and cooperation. It is obvious. It is indeed a first principle of the New Testament that Christians cooperate. It is our separation and disavowal of each other that requires explanation, urgent explanation. A little bit later on in this same chapter, McLeod goes on to describe what a heretic is according to the New Testament. Now, that's a word that inflames, and and we typically reserve it for those who deny fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And, and it does refer to those, and rightly so, uh, to those who deny fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. But according to McLeod, its primary use in the New Testament, I'm just going to let him say it, in the New Testament, a heretic is a divisive man. He is a man who causes divisions, who miscalls other Christians, who miscalls other churches, who is factious. That's what a heretic is. Now, the thing that unites us needs to be the truth of the gospel, what has been revealed in God's word. Paul calls us to be in full accord and of one mind, and that mind needs to not simply be informed, but completely formed by the scriptures. But I want you to think for a minute. Is this call for unity something that you take seriously enough? And if you're tempted to write, to write that question off, let me remind you, some of Jesus' final teaching to his disciples before he went to the cross, as he was preparing them for his death, the, the, the farewell discourse that takes place between John 13 through 17 that culminates in the high priestly prayer in John 17, some of his final instructions to his disciples were to be unified. Look at some of Jesus' last words. I do not ask for these only, this is his prayer, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So Jesus is praying for his disciples that were in the room with him, but also looking ahead to those who would come to believe in him through the disciples' word, meaning us. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may, be, may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. And Jesus prays this over his disciples, knowing exactly who they were, knowing exactly who we would be. In the room with him, right, the recipients of this prayer, these were men from different places, with different backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, different politics even. Whoa. Seriously, though, among Jesus' disciples, you had tax collectors. These were, these were people who would have been seen by faithful Jews in Israel as total traitors. Why? Because they sympathized, and capitalized, sympathized with and capitalized on the Roman occupation of Israel. So these were Roman sympathizers following Jesus. In the same group, you had zealots, people who would risk life and limb to cast out Rome. And what's Jesus' prayer for the tax collector, the Roman sympathizer, and the zealot? That they may be one. Unity. And in praying this, Jesus is teaching us that our bond to him is the most important bond. And it's something that can and should enable us to overcome our differences and have genuine fellowship. Now, does this mean that we never disagree? Absolutely not. But it does have massive implications for the ways in which we disagree. We don't get to throw barbs. We don't get to just sit back and complain. We don't allow ourselves to believe the worst things about people. The law that governs the Christian community is the law of love. And what is love? Not to quote Hathaway, baby don't hurt me, anyway. What is love? According to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And perfect love was embodied by Jesus, who tells us, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Oneness, unity. This is at the very essence of what it means for us to follow Jesus. So do you take that seriously? This is not optional for us. Well, in the next verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to show what gets in the way of our unity. He writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
what keeps us from exercising the unity that is ours in Jesus? Selfish ambition and conceit. Our constant tendency to count ourselves and our interests as more significant than others. To place ourselves and our interests over those of one another. But what is the antidote, according to this passage? It's humility. Now, humility is an underappreciated virtue in our culture, I think, to say the least. But that's not new. Right? Humans have always had a tendency towards self-promotion. Around the time that Paul was writing this letter, there was a, a Greek philosopher named Ep Epictetus who, made, or who listed meekness, meekness or humility as first in a list of vices. Jean-Jacques Rousseau once said, I rejoice in myself. My consolations lie in my self-esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would, it would have erected statues to me. Uh, Oscar Wilde, not, also not known for, for being particularly humble, um, when, uh, when going through customs once was asked if he had anything to declare, and his response was, only my genius. <laughs> and uh, today's celebrities, I mean... We're constantly engaged in shameless self-promotion. But really, those are just extreme examples of what is all of our natural tendencies. But this tendency, it makes unity impossible. It destroys community. So how, how do we overcome this? How do we display humility even if it goes against, even when it goes against our nature? Well, friends, I think we do so by examining the mind of Christ. Because what characterizes the mind of Christ? Humility. I want us to read verses 5 through 8 once again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate display of humility is seen in the self-giving love of Jesus. The description of the mind of Christ here begins with an affirmation of Jesus' of Jesus's being in person. What we read in verse 6 that he was in the form of God. Now, form here means the true and exact nature of something. This means that Jesus possessed all the characteristics and qualities of God himself. The writer of Hebrews declares that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Notice here that he is the radiance of the glory of God, not merely a reflector of the glory of God. He radiates God's glory because he contains it within himself. Now, this is not a, a sun and moon type of situation in which Jesus merely, merely reflects God's glory, shows us some truths about God, and then embodies those truths effectively. No, no, no. He radiates the glory of God because that glory is his. But though that is the case, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He relinquished his rightful position and honor. 
And notice that Jesus' relinquishment of his position and honor is active. It's something that he took on himself. Jesus' loss of status is not anything that was forced upon him. Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard writes, Christ humbled himself, not he was humbled. O infinite sublimity, of which it must be categorically true that there was none in heaven or on earth or in the abyss that could humble him. He humbled himself. The infinite qualitative difference between Christ and every other man lies indeed in this, that in every humiliation which he suffers, it is absolutely necessary that he himself should assent and confirm that he is willing to submit himself to that humiliation. This is infinite superiority over suffering, but at the same time also suffering infinitely more intense in kind. See, no one could humble Jesus. No one has the power to force anything on Jesus. And that makes his willingness to humble himself all the more powerful. And this is the mindset, friends, that we are called to have. So I want to ask, how willing are you to humble yourself, to lay aside your pride, to give up what you think you're entitled to for the sake of someone else? Uh, after the service last week, we got to hear from uh, Anne Ratsima, uh, who's uh, the sister of someone in our church. And the CEO of Madeir, which describes itself as a humanitarian organization inspired by Christian faith to save lives and relieve human suffering in the world's most difficult to reach and devastated places. I know many of you got to hear from her last week, so I'm not going to go through uh, in great detail all the things that she said, um, but it was so encouraging. She is a truly remarkable woman. But there was one little detail that she shared that was almost like a throwaway comment. Like she wasn't really trying to camp there. She was talking about um, her organization going and serving in, in a context, uh, serving a population in which there was an outbreak of, of uh, cholera. And again, offhanded, she just threw out that she knows firsthand how terrible cholera is because cholera is because when she was there serving this population, she contracted it herself. And that detail really struck me, right? Because it is such a powerful application, I think, of this text. See, cholera is a disease that none of us really need to be concerned about because you get it by drinking contaminated water. And we all, like, no matter how poor we might feel living here, it's hard for us to find contaminated water. But she taking on, again, the mindset of Jesus, humbly enters in to these people's circumstance and, and to the point where she's contracting a disease that isn't a concern for us where we live. But again, I mean, it seems extreme to us, but this is exactly what we're called to. 
And it's exactly the sort of thing that we see Christians doing throughout the ages, not because we're so great, but because we are inspired by the example that Jesus has set. I think Christians' willingness to set aside position and status and enter into other people's suffering, it, it is one of the most powerful witnesses that we can provide to the goodness of Jesus. There's an example, a uh, different example that, that sticks out to me too. Um, back in the fourth century, uh, the emperor Julian, who rejected Christianity, uh, was annoyed with Christians in the Roman Empire because of the ways in which they selflessly served other people. So in a letter he wrote to a pagan priest, he complained, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, referring to Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see our people lack aid from us. Again, such a powerful witness that we see throughout the ages. And as people seeing the goodness of Jesus and taking on that mind. Now, that is a really big call, isn't it? So what gets us there? How are we inspired to, to sacrificially serve other people? Well, I think it begins with beholding the things that we've been singing about this morning. It begins by beholding the goodness of of Jesus. We were talking about that uh, earlier this morning in, in, um, in our class in the other room. We used the example of uh, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, I listened to a, a podcast about him a while back, and um, if you don't know who Wayne Gretzky is, he's one of the, the greatest hockey players ever. His nickname is The Great One, so there you go. But he first got the idea to play hockey by observing it on a television screen as a child. And, and he was so captivated by the game that his parents reported that after they had turned it off, he bawled for hours because he couldn't see how something so beautiful could end. But friends, I think that that is the power of love and beauty, right? Seeing that then completely changed the trajectory of his life. He was willing to put in long hours, not because, I mean, I don't know what his vision was, but he was pursuing this beautiful game. I think for us, as we see the goodness of Jesus and we pursue that, as we've been freed to do, it will lead to us sacrificially loving and serving other people. And it doesn't necessitate that we contract cholera or engage in behavior that's going to attract the attention of an emperor. No, we can live this out in small ways in our own context, simply by thinking, how can I serve people around me? What are some things that I can do to put the needs of others above my own? How can I do that in my own house? How can I do that in my work? How can I do that in my school? What are needs that I see and how can I point to Jesus by tangibly serving other people? What can I give or sacrifice for the good of someone else? And again, this is the, this is the thing that we have been freed to do because Jesus did what he did. 
Right? His sacrificial death on our behalf means that the weight of sin, the weight of trying to prove ourselves, the weight of trying to make ourselves right before God, that has been taken away altogether. So we are now freed to love and serve for the sake of others in a way that would have been impossible otherwise. So we have the gift of trying to inhabit, of putting on the mind of Jesus, a mind which is ours, a mind where we see sacrificial love and service, self-emptying for the good of the other. And what does putting on the mind of Christ ultimately lead to? Well, friends, it, it leads to exaltation. The story doesn't end with Jesus' sacrificial death. No, in verses 9 through 11, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the cross to the world looked like a story of defeat, but it was actually the moment of triumph. We're told in Colossians that though we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made, alive, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in doing so, what happened? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, by dying for our sins, Jesus not only saved us, he inaugurated his kingdom, a kingdom whose values go, go completely against the values of the world. It is an upside-down kingdom in which the first will be last and the last will be first, where the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted, where service, sacrifice, and love are the currency. Can you imagine what our world would be like if people stopped trying to exalt themselves? Can you imagine what our churches would be like if we were more concerned about the glory of Jesus and showing one another honor than we were about our own glory and honor? Well, friends, look again at Philippians 2, 9 through 11. The reality that we are confronted with here is that Christ is exalted. He is seated on the throne. He is Lord. And there will come a day when everyone will recognize that. And though he is the only one that earned that exaltation, by his grace, he allows us to share in it as well. So may we live in that reality now by taking on the mind of Christ, not looking to our own interests, but also the interests of others, humbly serving one another and looking out for each other's good. Jesus shows us what this looks like. And his, and his spirit empowers us to live that out. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your love and your mercy. And Lord, we praise you this morning for the ways in which we have been able to see that in the face of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that despite our sin, despite the fact that we don't earn, that we don't deserve anything from you, that you have lavished your grace on us. We thank you for Jesus, who though he was God himself, he set aside his position and his status, that he took on the form of a servant, that he humbled himself even to the point of death so that we could be made right with you. Lord, help us to, to help us to believe that. Help us to internalize that and help us to live in light of that. And Father, as we go out from this room today, we, we pray that we would be strengthened by the knowledge that the story doesn't end at the cross. But that because of Jesus' triumph over death, he has been highly exalted. May we leave this room, Lord, praising King Jesus. And Lord, may we live in light of the reality of the new kingdom. Lord, may we learn to love and serve. May we look out for the interests of others. May we be willing to set aside position and status and honor so that we can lift up others, but most importantly, God, so that your name would be exalted. Help us, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.